You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. This is the season of Demnatia Memoriae. have found your island refuge. You've heard it from your scouts running hard from the coast to tell you that they're massing on the other side of the strait with their horses and their German auxiliaries and their flat-bottomed boats. You listen to the count of men and your heart sinks, but you mustn't show your fear before your people. Not here, not on this midnight beach, scoured by wind and the Roman landing imminent. You can't fight them with swords. You know that. You do not have that skill, and there are precious few on this island who do. Your warriors are depleted, their ranks hollowed out from fighting in the forested steeps, the wild crags and mountains for six long years. The Romans have taken your best, your leaders, your fiercest resistance. One by one, the strongest have fallen. But your strength has never lain with the sword. You've given your life to a different teaching, the ancient lore of the Druids, sacred knowledge of the earth and the stars, the transmigration of souls, the secrets of the gods. You hear them whispering to you beneath the rustling of leaves in the sacred groves, humming beneath the sound of the iron-gray waves piling up on the beach. What they're saying does not raise your hopes. You cast your eyes down the line of those you've assembled, the last druids of Ennis Mon, lined up on the night beach, carrying torches, waiting for the Romans. They've fled here to your island stronghold in trickles and torrents over the years, amidst crowds of refugees driven out from their homes by flame and sword. They are hollow-cheeked and hungry, their hair unkempt and wild. You've all lived on the edge these past few years, giving refuge to the desperate, sustenance to rebel leaders on the run, inspiring them to keep fighting. You can see the exhaustion in their faces, but now they will have to draw deep, to fight with every art of will and magic they have. 
You have no swords among you, only your torches and your gods and your indomitable will to live. This is our last chance, you tell them. Either the Romans die on this beach or we do. And if we fall, our way of life falls with us. Our knowledge falls with us. Our land and our people fall with us. So we must not fall. You bid them to call upon the gods who favor them most, the spirits of sea and life and air, whoever will listen. You look at their faces, lit up fierce and fearless in the torchlight, and for one wild, breathless moment you believe it will be enough. But then the first of the massive Germans rises from the sea, like an ancient monster from the blackest deep, hair seaweed tangled and skin slick with seawater, long grim metal gleaming in his hand, and you know in your heart, that it won't be. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. In the 4th century BC, the Greek geographer Pythias of Massalia set sail far north of the Mediterranean world in search of tin for trade. He went farther north than anyone he knew had been before. People probably thought he was mad, or doomed, or both. It's said he wasn't the first one to tread these mysterious waters. He may have been following a more ancient maritime path set down by Carthaginian explorers. The Gauls and other ancient tribes certainly traded in these latitudes, but the account of Pythias is the oldest written description we have of the British coastline. Pythias didn't just encounter the British Isles. He went as far north as you can go. On his voyage, Pythias witnessed such wonders as a vast frozen sea and regions where the sun never sets in the summer and never rises in the winter. He described wild, dangerous oceans with treacherous currents strongly influenced by the pull of the moon. Some of the earliest descriptions we have of the tides. Pythias's account itself has not survived to the present day, but it's quoted and summarized by much later writers such as Diodorus Siculus, Strabo, Polybius, Tacitus, and Pliny the Elder. Through them, we get the impression of a cold, damp island subject to thick mists, a population tall and robust, living in thatched huts made of reed or logs, organized in networks of small tribes, a people untouched by the luxuries of the mainland Gauls, an island rich in tin. And we also learn of surrounding islands, such as Ierne, an ancient name for Ireland, which according to Strabo, quote, stretches parallel to Britain on the north, its breadth being greater than its length. Concerning this island, I have nothing certain to tell, except that its inhabitants are more savage than the Britons, since they are man-eaters, as well as heavy-eaters. And, since, further, they counted an honorable thing when their fathers died to devour them, and openly to have intercourse, not only with the other women, but also with their mothers and sisters. But I am saying this only with the understanding that I have no trustworthy witnesses for it. <laughs> so I'm just going to spread some xenophobia and fake news. Great job, Strabo. Can we just talk about how Strabo is admitting that he completely pulls this out of his ass? Yeah, Strabo is just like, hey, I have a really cool story because I'm not interested in whether or not this story is accurate. All I want to do is tell you some crazy fake news. And here you go. That fake news is that people in Ireland are cannibals who really keep it in the family. Yeah, they are cannibal 
motherfuckers. I mean, that's what he's saying. Wow. I just, wow. It's just, I mean. And we've officially offended all of our Irish fan base. I mean, to be honest, you've offended me. I mean, my ancestors definitely, definitely date back to like ancient Ireland on my dad's side. So. And Jen. Jen quits the podcast in a offended rage. <laughs> that's it. That's the quote that broke you. <laughs> well, I mean, there's been many quotes that have come close, but i I find it's uh, this season and guys is going to be a real dark one. It's going to be a page turner. So I think the thing about Strabo and the reason to include this quote, even though clearly he doesn't actually have a verifiable source for what he's saying, he's spreading misinformation. And obviously he's spreading things that we now know were not true. But the reason to include it is because this is what the Romans had to go on as to what they thought of the people who lived in Britain and Ireland. They use stuff like this to justify their invasions all the time. They didn't ever invade Ireland, but they definitely thought this about people in Britain as well, people in Wales as well, and Scotland as well. They definitely invaded those places. This was all, you know, stuff that justified atrocities. Yeah. And the Romans had their own feeling of what Americans call manifest destiny, which is like, they get the right to take over anything that they can take over. And their justification for it was like, well, look at these people. They are eating their dead and having sex with their mothers and their sisters. Yeah, we're going to colonize them for their own good. We're bringing them civilization. Yeah, we're a civilizing force. And what cracks me up is at this particular point in time, there were quite a few Roman emperors, <coughs> Claudius, who were definitely uh, niece fuckers and quite a few empresses who were rumored to be uh, having uh, relations with their sons. So I really don't think they have any leg to stand on with these criticisms. Some people dispute the, the accounts of Caligula having sex with his sisters. But Claudius 100% was a niece fucker. I mean, that is not disputed. Exactly. I'm just saying, like, you know, the Roman culture at this point in time, they considered themselves to be so civilized, but they still had gladiatorial fights. They still had everything we talked about last season, in addition to the fact that their imperial family was, at this point, you're talking about the Julian Claudians, and those branches of that family were so interwoven. <laughs> Another island Pythias mentions is Thule, which is an island six days sail north of Britain, a place surrounded by frozen seas where there's continuous day for half the year and continuous night for the other half. Some historians believe this might be an island in the Outer Hebrides. Through Tacitus, we hear that Britain is shaped like a massive battle axe surrounded by a treacherous sea. Is that true, Jen? Is, is Britain shaped like a battle axe? I guess... Kind of, if like you're looking at like the bottom of England is like the axe bit, and then up through Scotland is like the handle. Right, like the pointy bit that gets attached to the handle. I can't really see which side they meant was the handle and which side was the top, except maybe the bottom of England was the top and where, you know, where the axe bit is, and the bottom was like the handle you'd hold to like while you're swinging the axe, I guess. It's like a really deformed battle axe, I suppose you could say. This is far enough in the past, and who knows how much of it they'd actually mapped out. Yeah, so anyway, so Pythias thought that Britain was shaped like a massive battle axe. Through Tacitus, quoting Pythias, we hear that Britain is shaped like a massive battle axe surrounded by a treacherous sea. One thing we do know is that the sea surrounding this um, possible battle axe of Britain was definitely treacherous. Quote, Nowhere has the sea a wider dominion, that it has many currents running in every direction, that it does not merely flow and ebb within the limits of the shore, but penetrates and winds far inland, and finds a home among hills and mountains, as though in its own domain. 
I feel like they're talking about like tidal rivers, you know, like the Thames. Yeah, so you can go down the Thames a certain amount where it's mostly salt water. And then there's a bit where the fresh water sort of meets and it sort of crosses over into being more fresh water than salt water. Yeah, what they're saying is it's like the sea penetrates into the land, which I guess is an interesting way to describe a network of tidal rivers. It's kind of the reverse of what you see where it's like rivers flowing to the sea. This is about the sea flowing in. Right. And we also hear of the island of Mona, another place where the days are shorter and the nights longer, or vice versa, depending on the season, due to its extremely northerly location. Mona was the ancient Celtic name for the island of Anglesey, off the northwestern coast of Wales. This represents just about the sum total of Greek and Roman knowledge about the British Isles by Julius Caesar's day. And in that time, most people saw this information as so wild and implausible that the British islands were widely considered more legend than real. Kind of like Atlantis. Yeah, that's kind of how people saw the British Isles during this time. It's like this legendary place kind of beyond the realm of human knowledge. At least people in the Mediterranean saw it. Absolutely. I mean, it's like when you're looking at sort of like map makers during the 1500s and 1400s, where you see at the edge of the map, it just says, here be monsters. Yeah, So this didn't change until a certain fiend of the podcast, Julius Caesar, came along. We are being haunted by Julius Caesar. The podcast has a haunting. I I feel like we can't go anywhere in Roman history without bringing up Julius fucking Caesar. I know. I'm just like, hey, Jen, I'm writing an episode without Julius Caesar in it. Oh, wait, I have to do three pages about Julius Caesar because this all goes back to him. Crap. We're being haunted. It's his fault. Absolutely his fault. Please don't invoke him this close to like Halloween, even though that's already passed. The veil between the two worlds is very thin. We don't need to invite him back into this world. So the year was 55 BC. Julius Caesar was in... I can't... We can't stop talking about him. He's probably masturbating in the corner listening to me talk about him right now. Furiously. (laughs) Julius... Julius Caesar was in the midst of the Gallic War, and things in Rome were getting a little bit dicey. The first triumvirate was firmly in control of Rome at that point. That would be the um, Julius Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus Devils three-way. But people in the Senate were becoming more and more uh, concerned about Caesar's actions in Gaul, to the point where some... Cato were calling loudly for Caesar to be recalled from Gaul and his armies taken from him. Some Cato were even calling for him to be handed over to various Germanic and Gallic tribes that Caesar had wronged, which I think would have been a great idea. It's like every so often you wind up on Cato's side. Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated thing about history, isn't it? Everyone is an actual person. As much as Cato really frustrates me as a person in history, sometimes he's got some real good points. Every so often I'm like, damn, Cato has a point. I mean, sometimes you even agree with Crassus. No. I never agree with him, but I understand why he did some of the things he did. Because it's just like, man, he just wants someone to write something nice about him. You know, you can see the good in anyone, I guess. I do not have that character flaw. (laughs) What Caesar needed at this point was a major public relations victory. Something like, I don't know, invading Atlantis and opening it up for trade. That's realistic, right? If anyone could pull this off, it'd be Julius Caesar. Julius fucking Caesar. So Julius fucking Caesar at that point had more information about Britain than the average Roman. He'd been in Gaul for about three years now. 
and the Gauls definitely traded with Britain. But they didn't write things down, which is why Pythias' account is our earliest one, we think. There may have been Roman artifacts, incidentally, found in areas of Britain, particularly in the southeast, that predate Caesar. But these don't mean Britain and Rome were in direct contact by then. They were most likely brought from Gallic merchants who traded with the Romans. The Britons were getting things, you know, secondhand from Gallic merchants. Yeah. So in Caesar's time, a tribe called the Veneti, who had special ships designed to handle the rough waters in the channel, were believed to have a monopoly on Gallic trade with the British Isles. Yeah, because they were the only people with these specially designed ships, and it's a whole giant rabbit hole in the commentaries, and it's really interesting. I feel like that would be a good topic for a Patreon. That you do? Oh, no. Julius Caesar <laughs> wants me to write it, I suppose. Julius Caesar feels very strongly that the other one's episodes are inferior to yours, Miss Williamson. If someone is to talk about things that I've talked about, it must be you. Oh, I like praise. Keep going. Let's talk about how great I am. Julius Caesar wants to hear more about himself. He wants to hear his name lovingly praised from your lips. Ew. See, you invite him in for two seconds and he becomes disgusting and you want to smack him. Now I have to talk about the commentaries and I feel dirty. So in the commentaries, which remember, were meant to be read aloud in market squares all over Italy to build up Caesar's legend, they were propaganda. Caesar claims that his reason for invading Britain was because British tribes were providing help and reinforcements to Gallic tribes fighting against him. And this was probably a pretext. One set of my ancient ancestors are fighting with the other set of my ancient ancestors and inside of me I'm just like angry on both fronts. Jen is at war with herself during this episode. So Caesar called in some Veneti merchants and tried to get them to spill the details about the British coast, but they didn't want to talk, probably because Caesar had brutally put down their tribe's rebellion in the prior year, and it was really brutal, you guys. I could do a whole Patreon on it. You'd cry. And maybe she will. Maybe I will if you're super nice to me and praise me and stroke me and tell me I'm a pretty pony. Do you want me to get Caesar back on here? Julius Caesar, do you have some more praise for me? And what have you done for me lately, Ms. Williamson, that deserves praise? Julius Caesar, <laughs> I have written all these episodes about you and I let you come onto my podcast and talk to us pretty much at will. I think you should praise me. Ms. Williamson, were it not for my exceptional life, you'd have nothing to podcast about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you think you're the one doing me the favor, do you? You know he's not going to reply. Julius Caesar, fuck off. So Caesar called in some Finetti merchants and tried to get them to spill the details about the British coast, but they did not want to talk. So he sent a single tribune on a single ship to scout the coast. We don't know exactly what part of the coast he explored, but some historians believe it was probably the coast of Kent in the southeast, most likely the stretch of coast closest to France right across the channel from Calais. This would be the place that is closest to France of anywhere in the channel. At some times when the weather is clear, you can see across the channel from France to England and from England to France. It took the Tribune five days to sail across the channel, ascertain that a landmass of some kind was indeed there, and it wasn't a myth, it was there, and come back with some intelligence for Caesar. And that was plenty of time for the Veneti merchants to warn their contacts in Britain, so the British knew that Caesar was coming. Caesar assembled two legions and put them on a fleet of 80 transport ships. He also got together 18 ships of cavalry, which sailed from a different port. Everyone was supposed to meet up at a beachhead that most historians believe was none other than the spectacular Cliffs of Dover. So if you've never been there, the White Cliffs of Dover are massive, gleaming, white chalk cliffs that rise as high as 350 feet above the sea, stretching for eight miles along the coast. Julius Caesar set out in the dead of night, well after midnight, and... 
It turns out Pythias's warnings about the roughness and currents of the sea around Britain were true, who'd have thunk it. Caesar's fleet got separated and did not arrive at the same time. Caesar's ship was among the first to arrive, and here's the situation that he found on that beautiful beach. Quote, Caesar himself reached Britain with the first squadron of ships, and there saw the forces of the enemy drawn up in arms on all the hills. The nature of the place was this. The sea was confined by mountains so close to it that a dart could be thrown from their summit upon the shore. Considering this by no means a fit place for disembarking, he remained at anchor till the ninth hour, about 3 p.m., for the other ships to arrive there. Julius Caesar's first sight of the semi-mythical island must have been otherworldly and jaw-dropping. Enormous white chalk cliffs gleaming in the dead of night. Crowds of enemy warriors all gathered on the ridgelines, well within dart-throwing or slingshot distance. The cliffs of Dover tower approximately 350 feet over the sea, but a good slinger in the ancient world could fire a stone as far as 1,300 feet, so they were well within slingshot distance. So Caesar took one look at the masses of warriors gathering along the Great Cliffs, noticed that his cavalry had not shown up, and noped the fuck out of there. He sailed off up the coast, looking for a better landing spot with maybe not so much, I don't know, potential murder and death on it. But the warriors of Britain followed him, tracking his ships along the coast. Caesar describes a great host of charioteers massing on the hills and beaches, preventing his fleet from landing. Finally, Caesar found a place to put to shore, but his ships couldn't get close to the beach because they were triremes that could only be anchored in deep water. His men had to fight to shore, pushing forward in neck-deep water, buffeted by waves and weighed down by armor, on unfamiliar ground opposed at every inch by tall, ferocious British warriors who only dispersed when Caesar gave the order for his triremes to start firing a hail of slings, arrows, and javelins at them from catapults on the ship's decks. Against all odds, Caesar managed to get his soldiers ashore. He drove off the British, but couldn't pursue them because his cavalry hadn't made it. This was the only reason Julius fucking Caesar assures us in his commentaries, which he totally wrote about himself in the third person, that Julius fucking Caesar in this instance was denied his accustomed success. It actually says his accustomed success in it. Oh, of course it does. God, Julius Caesar, you're such a dill hole. Such a dill hole. He's not going to come back on now. Nope. <laughs> Caesar tells us that within four days, even without his cavalry, he managed to intimidate the British tribes into surrendering, disbanding their army and sending him hostages. Sure, Julius Caesar, sure you did. That sounds so like it did not even happen. Correct. So here's the thing, though. His cavalry never made it, making... That sentence that Jen just read, even more implausible. As Pythias could have told him, the British Channel was known for its high tides, strong currents, and fierce storms. A storm blew Caesar's cavalry ships off course and they had to turn back to Gaul. Meanwhile, on the British beaches, the full moon raised tides higher than any Roman had ever seen before. Caesar's ships were wrecked at anchor, and his intelligence told him that the British tribes weren't as intimidated as he thought. Major shocker there. They were planning to start up a war again, hoping to cut Caesar off from provisions and strand him in Britain until winter. Julius Caesar did not want that, so he unfurled his mission-accomplished banner, turned tail, and ran. Away. 
Miss Williamson, it's very clear that you did not understand what Julius Caesar wrote in his commentaries. Oh yeah, do you want to clarify? Yes, one does not run away. One makes strategic retreats so that when they engage their enemy, they are able to overwhelm them with their superior strategy and manpower. Oh, that's what was happening. Okay. Absolutely, Miss Williamson. To imply otherwise would be a detriment to my honor. Well, I mean, actually, I hate when I agree with Julius Caesar, but there are many times in Julius Caesar's history when he did pull a strategic retreat. He definitely knew when to strategically run away. Ms. Williamson, it's not a strategic run away. It's regrouping. One does not run away. When one encounters a superior enemy, the only thing one can do is regroup and come up with a strategy that is actually going to be effective as opposed to attempting something that is completely futile. Miss Williamson, as someone who I have a modicum of respect for, although it goes down every moment I speak to you, I should imagine that you would understand this. You know what? Let's just move on. Okay, back to the story. But Julius Caesar tried again the next year. In his letters to friends, Cicero writes a letter to a buddy of his in Caesar's army, asking him to bring him back a British war chariot. And this time, Caesar went prepared with over 800 ships built on a design that was based on the Veneti ships, which were built to handle the rigors of the British coast. This time, Caesar managed to get fairly far inland, carried all the way by British warbands using guerrilla tactics to slow his army down. When he finally got to the Thames, he found the one shallow stretch of river shallow enough to cross, booby-trapped with sharpened stakes just under the water's surface, with a host of war chariots on the other side. It's here that Caesar brought out his single, lone war elephant, armored and outfitted with a tower full of slingers and archers. He just had one, as far as I know. Just had the one! When the elephant stepped foot in the river, the British hosts were so terrified that they fled, again, according to Caesar, leaving Caesar's army to cross freely, but very carefully because of all the stakes. Jenny, I feel like, feel like I'm, I feel like in a past life, or maybe even in this present life, I might be Julius Caesar's one single lone war elephant. Maybe. I mean, they didn't use girl war elephants. Mostly it was guys. Listen, this is the single one he's got. He's not going to be picky if it's a girl. And let's be honest, I'm pretty salty, so he would be down with that. Okay, so Jen is now Julius Caesar's one single war elephant on the banks of the Thames. I mean, we all know I'm a war elephant. Why would this surprise us if I was Julius Caesar's single war elephant on the banks of the Thames? Furious that this horrible person has taken my husband and my sons away from me. I'm now a raging single lone war elephant crossing the Thames. We now figured out which war elephant Jen is. Oh, I wish I'd been Ajax. But you're not. You're Julius Caesar's one single mom war elephant. Not even a mom in real life, but apparently in ancient history I was. (laughs) In ancient history, you're a single mom war elephant. Really pissed off by all this shit. I've been over so many, so many seas at this point in time. She's so over this fucking war in Britain before it even started. Also, I'm so drunk. I've had so many cocktails at this point in time. Not in reality, but as the war elephant, we know war elephants went into battle drunk. In reality, I'm having a rosé wine spritzer, so I am not drunk. Whatever you say. Getting back to the story now. So Caesar tells us all about how he laid waste to territories, successfully besieged a town, and managed to bully and intimidate the British into sending him hostages again. Or at least promising that they would. 
But as usual, there were storms and some of Julius Caesar's ships were destroyed and Caesar did not at all want to be stranded in Britain. So he dusted off his good old mission accomplished banner. He unfurled it on the deck of his ship as he tactically retreated. No word on whether the British tribes actually sent those hostages. Julius Caesar, did the British tribes ever send those hostages? Come to think of it, Miss Williamson, one is still waiting on those war hostages. Take a memo for me. Dear Queen of England, where, where are my war hostages? I'm not your secretary, Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, no, no, you are not doing this. That is inappropriate and wrong. No, go to the corner. I'm not going to draft a memo to the Queen of England for you, Julius Caesar. Don't write it down. So don't believe anything Julius Caesar tells you. He's just trying to aggrandize himself. Julius Caesar did not even come close to conquering all of Britain. You didn't, Julius Caesar. Stop looking at me like that. But he did bring the British Isles firmly out of the realm of myth and into reality for the Mediterranean world and provided us with the first written descriptions of British people in all of history, except for Pythias, who described them as simple people who stored their grain underground and were ruled by a multitude of kings and whose work didn't survive. So here's how Caesar described the British. Quote, The most civilized of all these nations are they who inhabit Kent. Remember, Kent is probably where Julius Caesar landed. Yeah, and knowing Julius Caesar, this is probably where he made his friends as well. Because remember, Julius Caesar just loved to get in there and sort of like set his spies out, although you can't really have many spies here. He was good at sort of making friends and then betraying them brutally. Or turning people against each other, you know? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, this is how Julius Caesar describes the residents of Kent that he met when he landed on the British Isles. So, quote, The most civilized of all these nations are they who inhabit Kent, which is entirely a maritime district, nor do they differ much from the Gallic customs. Most of the inland inhabitants do not sow corn, but live on milk and flesh and are clad with skins. All the Britons, indeed, dye themselves with woad, which occasions a bluish color, and thereby have a more terrible appearance in fight. They wear their hair long and have every part of their body shaved except their head and upper lip. Ten and even twelve have wives common to them, and particularly brothers among brothers and parents among their children. But if there be any issue by these wives, they are reputed to be the children of those by whom respectively each was first espoused when a virgin. Okay, so like, the reason I included this quote was, I believe, it's the first written description of British people ever. And I'm not the only person saying that. Mary Beard also said something like that in a documentary. So I'm pretty sure that that's the case. And what that description says is that British people painted themselves with woad, which makes them look blue. They shaved all their hair except for that they had these incredible moustaches. (laughs) And they definitely do the whole wife-sharing thing that they do in Ireland where everybody sleeps with everybody else. It's just so wild. And it's just like... It's so weird, right? It's so weird, but I also just like find it really fascinating when you see the way that the Romans look at other cultures and they make it seem so other and different. And then you unpack what you're actually looking at and it's like, yeah, but in Greek and Roman cultures, didn't you sometimes marry the wife of your brother after your brother died? So that's not that uncommon. I might be misremembering this, but maybe like Aristotle or somebody else, like there are ancient Greek writers who also talk about like this sort of communal spouse situation where everybody is married or at least is sleeping with everyone else. Like, I think that is an ancient way that some communities 
did things. I know nothing about this except that I think I read it somewhere in some Greek philosopher's writings. Sure, but Julius Caesar is such a tomcat. Like, which wife of a high-powered senator wasn't he sleeping with to get information about someone else? Like, if you try to explain Julius Caesar's, like, marriage and also the people he was having affairs with and everything else to someone, wouldn't they also come up with an odd picture of who he is and how his culture and beliefs work? Yeah, but it's strategic, Jen. When Julius Caesar does it, it's strategy, okay? But we don't know in this instance, because if he's telling us the story, if this sort of communal wife-sharing stuff wasn't also strategic, we don't know anything. Well, we don't know anything about even if this was true or if it was just Julius Caesar's lurid imaginings, so... I mean, I also have thoughts about, like, was it like, were you sharing your wife or your significant other during maybe like religious practices? Like maybe something akin to like a religious orgy, like a Bendis's orgies or Dionysus's orgies. Like there are so many commonalities we can see. Yeah. And we, we don't really have any info on that. So anyway, the pre-Roman British were a Celtic people, probably because that's even in dispute. And probably not true for everywhere in the British Isles at the time. Some historians believe Celtic-speaking people didn't arrive in Britain until around 100 BC, which makes them relatively new arrivals by Caesar's time. Some accounts put them there earlier, at around 600 BC. Still other accounts dispute what Celtic even means and whether it has a genetic component or it's just cultural or linguistic. It's kind of a rabbit hole that we, we're not going to get into at this moment. But the way the ancient Romans described them, the people of Britain shared a common Celtic culture with the Gauls, except that they were more backwards ugh, than the Gauls. Quote unquote, that's something that they said or, you know, implied. Hence my ugh. And they were a bit of a Celtic time capsule. They were culturally similar to the Gauls, but they were sheltered from the trade influence of the Mediterranean. So there's one very specific, very charismatic example of people in Britain being kind of a Celtic time capsule, and that is the war chariot. So when we did our episode on the Gauls, Everything Belongs to the Brave, the war chariot played a big role, appearing in the archaeology of the ancient La Tent culture and in folk tales like the Cattle Raid of Cooley and the Tales of Cuchulain. War chariots have also been used in cultures as diverse as Egypt, Persia, India, Israel, other parts of the ancient Near East, Asia, and North Africa. So war chariots at one point in the ancient world were pretty widespread. However, by the time Caesar arrived in Gaul, war chariots were old tech pretty much everywhere else in the world that I've seen. That might be not true for places in Asia and China specifically, but I don't know a whole lot about that. War chariots had fallen out of favor in Gaul, for sure, as horses were bred to be larger and cavalry became a more important part of ancient armies. So what happened was horses were bred to be larger until you could get a lot of horses that were big enough to ride. You didn't have to have a cart. You could just ride your horse. And that made you more agile than you would be riding a war chariot. So a lot of these ancient armies by this point in time were switching over from war chariots to cavalry. And the Gauls had made that transition by the time Caesar got up there with the commentaries because he doesn't mention seeing war chariots at all in Gaul. So however, in the British Isles, people were still fighting with war chariots. 
So I'm guessing that this picture that they saw um, of these warriors in Britain would have been very otherworldly and strange to the Romans of Caesar's time. They thought of war chariots as part of the archaic legendary tradition of the Iliad. And I'm guessing, putting my tinfoil hat on here and putting myself in the place of an ancient Roman soldier on the decks of one of Caesar's ships, I'm imagining that seeing people fight seriously with war chariots in Britain would kind of be like us finding an island somewhere and landing on it and seeing people geared up for war there fighting with revolutionary war gear, like not as a reenactment, but as a real thing. It would have been like time travel. And we've talked a lot about how Julius Caesar's commentaries are an untrustworthy narrative. They're propaganda and they're the account of the conqueror. However, what Julius Caesar gives us, it's one thing we can't get from Diodorus or Pliny or Suetonius or Dio or any of the other writers who talk about the Britons during this time, an eyewitness account. So here it is, straight from the commentaries, Julius Caesar's eyewitness account of how chariot warriors fought in battle. Quote, their method of fighting with their chariots is this. Firstly, they drive about in all directions and throw their weapons and generally break the ranks of the enemy with the very dread of their horses and the noise of their wheels. And when they have worked themselves in between the troops of horse, leap from their chariots and engage on foot. The charioteers, in the meantime, withdraw some little distance from the battle and so place themselves with the chariots that if their masters are overpowered by the number of the enemy, they may have a ready retreat to their own troops. Thus, they display in battle the speed of horse together with the firmness of infantry and by daily practice and exercise attain to such expertness that they are accustomed even on a declining and steep place to check their horses at full speed and manage and turn them in an instant and run along the pole and stand on the yoke and then betake themselves with the greatest celerity to their chariots again. I mean, this sounds like some real Cucullin-level warrior feet shit, doesn't it, Jen? Yeah, totally. It sounds like just an incredible thing to witness firsthand. A host of war chariots galloping down a steep hill at full speed, turning on a dime, the warriors so nimble that they can leap out of the chariot and run down the pole between two galloping horses or even stand upon the yokes on the horse's surging shoulders, throwing their spears with hair's breadth accuracy. Wow! So another group of people Julius Caesar encountered were the Druids. He encountered them more in Gaul than in Britain, but the Druids also played a major role in the religious lives of the ancient Britons. For various reasons, I mean, we constantly keep reminding you, don't trust fucking Julius Caesar. But don't trust Julius fucking Caesar. <laughs> we really keep reminding you of this for a, a good reason. We have talked about Augustan propaganda. We got this idea from somewhere. It was great Uncle Julius. So yeah, all of Caesar's accounts have a faint whiff of propaganda to them. A stank. <laughs> But Caesar's is the earliest detailed written account of the Druids and what they believed that has lasted to this day. Druids were intensely charismatic figures who played a prominent role in Celtic mythology. So prominent that it's easy to think we know a lot about them historically, and we don't. We have not one single archaeological artifact or site that can be definitively said to be Druidic. There's no trace of the Druids in the archaeological record. Druids also appear a lot in ancient Celtic folktales. Cathbad the Druid in the Ulster Cycle is an obvious example, but these don't date from the time when Druids actually existed. Those stories were first written down by Irish monks sometime between the 700s and 1000s AD, depending on which part of the story we're talking about. Yes, these stories probably do arise from oral traditions that are far older, but we have no definitive proof of how old 
or whether these stories existed anywhere close to the time of the actual druids or reflect what they were really like. And we have nothing in the historical written record about what druids really believed in their own words because the druids didn't write anything down. Julius Caesar tells us that this is deliberate. It's how the druids kept the sacred knowledge of their people consolidated in only a few hands. According to him, it was a way of hanging on to power. Ancient contemporary sources such as Caesar, Tacitus, Pliny the Elder, and others are imperfect. They're the accounts of outsiders, sometimes conquerors, and there's no telling how accurate they are. We can't ask an ancient druid to explain their beliefs to us. So the picture we have of the ancient druids is very spotty and very flawed. But here's what we know about them based on the ancient sources we have. The word druid comes from a Latin word, which in turn is believed to derive from a Gallic word. While we can't say for sure what that word was, linguists have reconstructed it from ancient words in Old Cornish and Middle Welsh, and believe its original meaning was something like oak knower or oak finder. And this makes sense, because oak groves were sacred to the druids. They were said to conduct their rituals in massive oak groves, and also to worship the mistletoe, which grows on oak trees. I mean, it grows on a lot of different trees, but you can definitely find it quite easily in oak trees. And also acorns were like said to be like, acorns were very symbolic in ancient religions because like from them grew the oak tree. So they were like really beautiful symbols and they're used a lot. They're kind of like mini worlds. Ooh. So there were, according to ancient writers, three distinct orders of druids, the ones called druids, who are judges, philosophers, and teachers who carry the knowledge of their people's laws, history, and science in their heads. The ovates, who acted as healers and soothsayers, and bards, who knew the epics, songs, poems, mythologies, and legends of their people. Both men and women could be druids. So Jenny, which class of druid do you think you'd belong to? Oh, I'd be a bard. 100%, no question. What about you? I think I'd like to believe I'd be a bard. You'd totally be a bard. You're such a storyteller. You'd have to be a bard. I don't know. So, according to Caesar, the Druids were among the most important people in Celtic society. They judged crimes, conducted sacrifices and sacred rituals, interpreted signs importance, and decided disputes large and small in their communities, everything from boundary and inheritance issues to murder cases. The Druids were exempt from conscription into wars, but they did have an immense wartime power, the ability to stop a battle. Diodorus describes a druid stepping between two armies in full charge, weapons drawn, and halting the battle as suddenly as if casting a spell over the two sides. There was one head druid to lead an entire order. Kind of like the Pope of Druids? Or maybe the Dalai Lama of Druids? Maybe? We're not sure. He was the boss druid. There was a boss druid. And if the boss druid died, a new one might be chosen or elected. Or, despite the fact that Druids were exempt from military service, contenders might do battle for the honor. So what you're telling me is, like, Druids are not, they don't have to do military service, but they could, I guess, if they wanted to, also be warriors and do military service. And if the boss Druid dies, they could have, like, essentially, like, what was it, like, where the Thracian wives are fighting over their husband's graves. Like, they would just be like, shall we duke it out to see who's the best? I mean, that is the impression I'm getting from this source. Bear in mind, it's an ancient Roman source, so it's an outsider's point of view. That's kind of cool, kind of badass. Kind of badass, right? It's like there are some druids who don't fight and maybe aren't martial, but then there are some druids who are also warriors. I can imagine that, like, every once in a while the warrior one would win, and then sometimes, like, one of the ovates, like, I'm not going to fight you. I'm just going to, like, 
outmaneuver you with like my logic and my ability to spin a, a logical argument. I don't have to pick up a sword. I bet there are so many ways to win to be the boss druid. Maybe they have like memorization battles of like <laughs> everyone has to know this poem or something that's like 19 million stanzas and the first person to mess up loses. Maybe. I mean, that sounds very druidic. It does. So one prominent theory among modern historians, and there's a lot of debate about this, is that Celtic culture was transmitted from mainland Europe into the British Isles at some point before recorded history, long before Roman contact. But Julius Caesar tells us that the religion of the Druids was actually invented in Britain and transmitted the other way, into mainland Europe and the rest of the Celtic world. He also tells us that if you really wanted to learn the Druidic arts, the only place to study was in Britain. What would that education look like, by the way? We don't know a lot about it, but we do have a hunch that it involved a lot of memorization. Caesar says that people sent their children from all over the Celtic world to study the Druidic arts in Britain, and the training could take 20 years. According to Caesar, it was forbidden to write down the sacred knowledge of the Druids because they thought writing things down made your mind soft. They're like, you're going soft reading all those scrolls and writing things down. Forget it. It's like people watching TV nowadays are spending too much time on a screen. I don't think he's 100% wrong. I mean, I don't think they're 100% wrong. Like, God, my memory was so much better when I was younger and reading physical books and not spending as much time in front of a screen. I guess, but like there's always been sort of a strain in cultures of mistrusting new technology. That's what I see in this, where it's just like, you youngins keep reading your books and it's making your mind soft. You should memorize. Well, absolutely. And I think the other thing that I do sort of believe that I think Julius Caesar says in his commentaries is they didn't want all of their knowledge to be common knowledge. They wanted to keep some of those mysteries for themselves because we see this later on in the Christian world where Bibles are mostly written in Latin and very few people can read Latin. And so they actually can't read the words in the Bible. So they have to believe what someone is telling them, as opposed to actually being able to interact with their the mysteries of their faith. And if you believe that the Druids also were leaders of their faith, then that's a thing that they're doing here. He is right. The idea that only a few people have this knowledge is so important for the religious and cultural control of a wide group of tribal people. Yeah, and the fact that people from tribes all over the Celtic world sent their children to be educated in these mysteries, you know, like there was an indoctrination process. Like they couldn't just learn it out of context by reading it in a book. And, you know, again, I think we can go back and look into the Greco-Roman world. And we can see this a lot in many of the early like religious cults, like the cults of Dionysus or Mithras. The Eleusian mysteries, that, that was a big one. And that's not to say this is the same necessarily in Eastern religions or other religions. Yeah, I don't know everything about every religion that ever happened. But I mean, I feel like there are so many cults that we encounter in the Mediterranean world that really did try to keep their sacred tenets secret. Yeah. So we know so little about Druidic teachings. Julius Caesar gives us a few snippets. Quote, the main object of all education is, in the Druids' opinion, to imbue their scholars with a firm belief in the indestructibility of the human soul, which, according to their belief, merely passes at death from one tenement or body to another. For by such doctrine alone, they say, which robs death of all its terrors, can the highest form of human courage be developed. Subsidiary to the teachings of this main principle, they hold lectures and discussions on astronomy, 
the extent and geographical distribution of the globe, on the different branches of natural philosophy, and on many problems connected with religion. Interestingly, Diodorus calls this belief in reincarnation that the Druids had the Pythagorean doctrine. And this isn't the only place where the beliefs of the Druids were linked to Pythagoras. Ammianus Marcellinus, writing in the 300s AD, says, quote, The Druids, being loftier than the rest in intellect, and bound together in fraternal organizations, as the authority of Pythagoras determined, were elevated by their investigation of obscure and profound subjects, and scorning all things human, pronounced the soul immortal. And I just thought you would love that detail, Jen, because you talked about Pythagoras when we were talking about Thracian religion. Did I mean Pythagoras? We see in the Thracian religions, but in particular in the Orphic religion, because the founder of the Orphic religion was a Pythagorean. Who was Pythagoras again? He invented the triangle. We know that. Yeah, he was a Greek mathematician, and he had his own sort of like cult devoted to him. The hypotenuse. Kind of a big deal. Pythagoras is super fascinating, and I want to go down a giant rabbit hole. We're planning an upcoming season where we talk a lot about, like, the different religious life and cults and beliefs in ancient Rome, and I guess some in ancient Greece. And I am going to cover the cult of Pythagoras. So one of the central doctrines of the Pythagorean cult was that the soul was immortal. And this is a belief that cropped up in Druidic teachings and hints at a connection between East and West that is older than the Roman invasion. And even though we just got done talking about how Britain was kind of this time capsule and it didn't have connections to the Mediterranean world, the fact that the Druids had this belief implies that maybe they actually did. And pre-Roman, Britain had a connection to the Greeks. It's just all these weird sort of intriguing hints to things that tell us that we just don't know the whole story. It's so fascinating because we can see that in Eastern religions as well, which is why it's like often linked to like Dionysus and the Orpheics and stuff like that. There's some cultural exchange that we maybe haven't tracked all the way yet. It's so interesting. Yeah. So I also wanted to do a little detour here about the memorization because memorization was such a huge deal to the Druids. Like you spent 20 years memorizing things. Depending on your specialty, that might be songs and poetry and mythology, or it might be the laws and history of your people, or it might be stuff about the gods or science or natural philosophy. And we don't exactly know how this extreme amount of memorization worked. But Jen, have you heard of the Memory Palace? I have heard of the Memory Palace. Yeah, so the Memory Palace is something I personally have never been able to do. I don't think I've ever tried to do it. Yeah, so it's a technique of remembering things where you imagine, you kind of tie it to a physical space in your head. Like you imagine rooms in a building or like an arrangement of houses on a street or something or some sort of geographical map with discrete rooms or areas in your head. And When you want to commit a set of facts to memory, you walk through these rooms in your imagination and you place an item of memory in each room, forming a connection in your mind between that fact or item or whatever it is and some feature of that room. And you can remember things by walking through the rooms and finding these items again in the various rooms. So like, what would be an example of this? So an example of this. Okay. Say I wanted to remember the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, like when that happened. Maybe I walk into my memory palace and I go into my living room with a fireplace and in the fireplace, 
I have a beautiful fire going. And that's the place where I set to, to my memory the date of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, which I believe was 79 AD, between the 24th and 25th of August, although that is debated. It might've also happened in October. But yeah, so every time I want to remember that fact, I walk back into my memory palace and I find that room with the fire that's going. And there etched on the fireplace is 79 AD. 24th to 25th of August. It like it ties it to a space. So if you want to memorize a list of vegetables and the first item is carrots, then you imagine opening the door to the kitchen and on the table in the kitchen is a giant basket of freshly picked carrots from the garden with dirt still clinging to the roots. And maybe some of them are like purple and white and weird colors because they're artisanal carrots. But the carrots are always the same. They're always in the same place in your head on this table in the kitchen. We're probably screwing it up. I understand it, though, because like, I've got kind of a photographic memory. I can remember where I saw something on a page, but I can't remember where I saw something on a screen. So when I do like the bulk of our episodes, I tend to read everything on the page and then I know I'm like, okay, so it happened before this, but after this, and I know exactly where it is. I tend to have that feeling when I write something down, like the physical act of writing it down, whether I type it or write it by hand, really cements it in my memory. I used to be in theater a lot, and the way that I would memorize, you know, large chunks of lines for theater was just writing them down in a notebook over and over and over and over again. I guess if I was a druid, I would try to write everything down over and over again to memorize it, and then they'd kick me out of the druid school. Well, I guess you could write it down in something like sand over and over and over again until it disappears. I have a feeling that the Druid instructors would frown aggressively on me writing things down as a memory trick. So anyway, that's the memory palace. And this method was well known in Greek and Roman times. I think it was invented around 2,500 years ago. Cicero talked about it. And I really don't know if this is how the Druids committed things to memory, but it intrigues me to think of all these ancient Druids walking around with these massive memory palaces just gleaming in their minds. Just imagine what it would be like to explore a Druid memory palace. Man, it would just be so incredible. What would the rooms even look like? Imagine what we would learn about what their beliefs were in just exploring this massive, incredible memory palace in a druid's mind. It makes me sad. Yeah, because when they died, it died with them. So Caesar also gives us gory details about human sacrifice because Caesar's never went to skimp on the gory details. No, I mean, his big thing was that Druids did a lot of human sacrifice. And again, <laughs> I refer you to the gladiatorial games, which we just spent a season talking about. We don't do human sacrifice. Oh, no. No, no. <laughs> we just kill people in various extremely bloody and imaginative ways after dedicating their fights to the gods. But that's not human sacrifice. That's just, I don't know. That's just, that's just a Sunday. It's just your normal Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> According to Caesar, those who were very ill or about to go into war might either sacrifice a victim to the gods or make an oath to do it so their lives would be spared. The Druidic religion held that a life had to be offered for a life. Otherwise, the gods wouldn't grant your prayer. Any human sacrifices had to be performed by the Druids, or they wouldn't count. Caesar also tells us of the Wicker Man, a massive wicker statue in the shape of a man that would be filled with people and animals and set on fire. Criminals were the ideal victims, but anyone would do in a pinch. 
Diodorus tells us about one particularly gruesome ritual in which a druid would stab a man just above the diaphragm and read the future in his death throes. That is so familiar. Where did we see something similar to that? So I feel like something like that also appears in Tacitus when he's talking about Germanic people. Sure, but we also saw it with the Thracians. Oh yeah, that's right. The Thracians did this too. Everybody was doing this whole stabbing people and telling the future with the death throes. It was very common. Which makes me feel like there's like either... There's a dissemination amongst the Gallic and Celtic and Germanic cultures where there was some common ritual thing that spread out, or there's something that the Romans, who are chronicling these people and are pulling all the information from, are putting on these people. Yeah, it might be this sort of sensationalistic detail where the Roman chroniclers are like, well, either repeating something that they saw somewhere else about a different culture and just, you know, putting it in there and repeating it, or maybe putting it on these people to make them seem even more scary. So you got to take some of this with a grain of salt. Or a salt lick. So the Druids kept most of their beliefs top secret to the lay public, as we've said, but one aspect of their religion made its way to the public domain. The fact that the Druids believed in reincarnation, or that the human soul was indestructible. Strabo tells us that the Druids believed that both human souls and the universe itself was indestructible. The ancients believed that the Druids possessed secret knowledge about the earth, the stars, the universe, and life after death. And as usual, Pomponius Mela brings it home with his cheese speedo and his pizza and his perfect quote for the podcast. I'm just going to hit you with a Pomponius Mela quote, Jen. Are you ready? I am so ready. Quote, they have an eloquence of their own and their druids as masters of wisdom. These profess to know the magnitude and form of the earth and the world, the motions of the heaven and the stars, and the will of the gods. They teach the most noble of the nation many things privately, and for a long time, even for twenty years, in a cave or in inaccessible woods. One of their precepts has become public, namely, that they should act bravely in war, that souls are immortal, and that there is another life after death. Therefore, along with the dead, they burn and bury things which belong to them while living. Some even went so far as to ascend the funeral pyres of their friends of their own accord, as though about to live with them. So one thing here that you do see cropping up in different sources is that the Celts in general were so extremely brave because they didn't believe that their souls died. (coughs) And the Thracians. Yeah, that's right. The Thracians too, for sure. What it says to me is a lot about how the Roman gaze at these other cultures and their warriors and how they interacted, like the fierceness of the battles that were put up by these other cultures. I feel like the Romans had to justify why they had such a hard time colonizing them. And part of it is they dig into their beliefs and they're like, well, of course, if you're not afraid to die in battle, you're going to fight so much more fiercely. Yeah. And maybe it doesn't occur to them that these people were just fighting so fiercely because they didn't want to be enslaved and be culturally erased. And colonized. Yeah. So we're going to go on and tell you more. But first... We have a commercial break. You may or may not hear a commercial, but be happy if you do, because it means we are getting paid. That's a good thing. That means we can bring you season seven of the podcast. It means we can afford to keep the lights on. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. 
I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Are we back? Did you get an ad? I hope you were blessed by the gods of commerce. Fingers crossed. Right now, at this point in history that we're in, we're talking about what happened after Julius Caesar's conquest of Gaul. And then we're going to get into what happened in Britain, because Britain wasn't conquered for about a century afterwards. But the decline of the Druidic religion and what it transformed into happened during this century, and it's relevant to what we're talking about. So, Caesar conquered all of Gaul by 51 BC. And this is a story we tell in our Verse and Getterich series, Everything You Love Must Burn. In the wake of Caesar's conquest of Gaul, the Druidic religion went from being crucial to Celtic life in Gaul to being decidedly on the margins. The Druids suffered a swift and catastrophic loss of status and position. It's hard to trace exactly what happened to the Druids in the years after Caesar's conquest, as there are no archaeological artifacts that can be definitively proven to be Druidic. And there are no accounts from the Druids or even other Celts subject to Roman oppression. The evidence for everything we're about to tell you is spotty. However, in her article, At the End of the World, Druidic and Other Revitalization Movements in Post-Conquest Gaul and Britain, the scholar Jane Webster argues that you can actually trace the decline of the Druids in the way that they were written about. Julius Caesar describes them as leaders in their communities, expert in everything from law to history to medicine to science. But by the time of Pliny the Elder, they were being described as magicians and diviners who primarily operated in spaces on the margins, like secluded sacred groves and caves and places like that. Sure, they're saying that now the Druids are on the margins of society and very fringe, and charlatans and magicians and stuff like that. But we're Where do we see that in other cultures? We see that with Dionysus. We see that with the priests of Artagatis. This is definitely a Roman way of trying to force these religions that have the power to stir up people to incite revolutions and to incite violence against Rome into obscurity and eventually this fringe culty place where they weren't before. So whether or not that was happening or wasn't happening, to me, the pattern of it repeating, I feel like it's difficult to ignore that. Yeah, and I think that that's really an important point, like drawing this connection between the Druidic religion and Dionysus at that time, because the Druidic religion was absolutely marginalized by the Romans. In the, in the decades after the conquest. And we're going to get into how, and we're going to talk more about Jane Webster's theories on how this happened a little bit more and what it looked like. But the point is that they were marginalizing this religion, but it still had a lot of influence on people, and it still had a really destabilizing influence on the Roman Empire because of how much pull and authority it had on people who had been marginalized and colonized. So it became kind of a, an underdog religion, much like Dionysus, I think is fair to say. Or Artagatis, and both of those had massive uprisings against the Roman Republic. So yeah, it makes sense that they would be trying to discredit the Druidic religion at this point in time. So theoretically, the warrior elites had to find their own way to exist in the Gallo-Roman world, in the new world that Julius Caesar had created for them, which was not Gallic, it was Gallo-Roman. 
But the Druids found themselves sidelined even more, according to this theory. Instead of sending their children to Druidic teachers for an education, the elites in their own culture, Celtic and Gallic elites, had to send their kids to Rome, where they could learn to survive and thrive in the dominant culture. Druidic knowledge was sidelined and their ancient religion was suppressed. Webster argues that the Romans had good reason to suppress the Druids. It wasn't just the lurid stories of human sacrifice, which may have been deployed and made up by the Romans to demonize and other this religion, although archaeological evidence that the Celts in general practiced human sacrifice is kind of fuzzy. It's hard to tell what specific burials meant if you don't know what the religion was, but there were a lot of deviant burials, so I suspect that this did happen. Anyway, it wasn't just the human sacrifice that bothered the Romans about the Druidic religion if it happened. It was that the Druids went around predicting Roman doom loudly and at length and inciting rebellions like we just talked about. The Druids, after the Gauls were conquered, were not quiet. They were going around riling people up and inciting rebellions and telling people, listen, this is a sign that the Romans are going to fall. That is a sign that the empire is unstable and basically convincing people that the empire was going to fall any minute. All they had to do was, was rebel. And to be fair, the time period we're talking about is just after Julius Caesar. So we've got just the end of the Republic. So yeah, they're predicting probably the end of the Roman Republic. And then you're looking at the early times in which you have Augustus ruling and turning the Republic into an empire and then going from a series of successively worse and worse emperors in his family into quite a lot of turmoil when Nero is dead. So yeah, if you were a Roman who kept hearing about this religion in the provinces and the conquered areas that was turning up all this turmoil and you're like, oh God, Nero's burnt the city down, you'd be quite worried. Right. I mean, the Druids weren't wrong and people believed them because the evidence was right in front of their eyes. This was an extremely unstable period in, in Roman history. So the record of the Druids predicting Roman doom is spotty. There aren't a lot of instances in the ancient sources. I suspect that's because the ancient sources didn't write this stuff down a lot. Or they didn't want to give them the power of writing it down. The Roman people we know were very superstitious. And oh my goodness, if they wrote down every single time the Druids predicted something and they were correct, that would be very scary and very destabilizing. Yeah. So Webster pinpoints an example in Tacitus's histories during the Batavian Revolt which we're going to talk about in a Patreon episode. Yeah. And during this revolt, the Capitoline Temple to Jove, or Jupiter, was burned down in 69 AD, which the Druids viewed as a portent of Rome's downfall. According to Tacitus, they believed, quote, Once long ago, Rome was captured by the Gauls, but since Jove's home, the Capitoline Temple, was unharmed, the Roman power stood firm. Now this fatal conflagration has given a proof from heaven of the divine wrath and presages the passage of the sovereignty of the world to the peoples beyond the Alps. Such were the vain and superstitious prophecies of the Druids. So what the Druids were saying here basically was like, hey everyone, this temple just burned down and it's a sign that the Roman Empire is going to fall. And when they fall, the Gauls are going to be in control again. They're going to be in control of their own lives and destinies again. And we can get rid of the Romans for good. It's a sign. It's a sign from our God. So that's what they're saying. In fact, Webster goes so far as to argue that, in essence, the Druidic religion became an end-of-the-world cult in the decades after the Roman conquest of Gaul. That doesn't mean that they thought the end of the whole world was coming. They thought the end of the Roman world was coming. They were predicting doomsday for the oppressor. Yeah. Webster cites studies that draw parallels between the situation with the post-conquest Druids and movements from other cultures that have been recently conquered, followed by a rapid reordering of their entire social fabric. 
These were movements dedicated to predicting the downfall of the oppressive colonizers who came in and destroyed their way of life. So one movement that Webster draws a parallel to is the ghost dance movement, which arose among the Northern Paiute people in the U.S. in the late 1800s. And I think that there are different cultures who had these movements in their history at different points in time when they had been colonized a lot of the time in more recent history it's by Europeans. And I feel like it's just like this group of people who want back what they had and they want it back so much that they're willing to take any sign that maybe the end of their oppression is coming and maybe it's here maybe it's this time maybe it's this time that lightning hits this temple and burns it down or maybe it's this time this volcano erupts or it's this time this emperor is overthrown by that emperor whatever sign they take they'll take it and run with it because they want it so bad and can you blame them i don't blame them at all i wonder if they're taking these signs as you say and they're using them to create power in the oppressed people because what you're seeing in the juridic culture here they've been sidelined they were the leaders of their culture they were the people everyone deferred to and what happened when the romans came in and colonized is they put people in charge who would be mostly more loyal to rome than anything else and they wanted to take the children from those tribes and indoctrinate them into the roman culture and that was stripping away their culture so what the druids were trying to do at this point in time was they were trying to say listen this is not something that's going to last look at these signs importance we're seeing and also like maybe we had a little hand in doing that they were trying to continuously keep a resistance through reading these signs through having their cultural ways preserved but as we mentioned earlier because nothing is written down so much is lost well, the interesting thing is that Webster says exactly what you just said in the next paragraphs. But it's it's really true that among a lot of these religious beliefs that sprung up in this circumstance, what happens is there are people who had once been cultural elites who had that elite status taken away by a new colonizing force, and they tend to be the leaders of these movements. Which makes total sense. Makes total sense. And I honestly don't think that these two interpretations of it, like my very emotional interpretation and your more strategic one, I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive. I mean, both of those things could be operating at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think both those things are absolutely operating at the same time, because part of the really big thing is their culture is absolutely disappearing. And the only way they can keep it is to remind people that like, this is who we are. This is what we believe. These are new people who are forcing us to do things that we don't want to do to live their way. If we give up all of the stuff that make us who we are, then who are we? And look, our gods aren't even on their side. Look at all the trouble they're sending them. Right. So Webster also notes similar movements because there's so little documentation and you have to read between the lines a lot. But she compares the Druids in the decades after Caesar conquered Gaul with similar movements that have arisen among other groups of colonized people facing catastrophic cultural collapse in more recent times. And according to her, there's a pattern to these movements where recently colonized people are facing rapid change, displacement and cultural disorientation. So ancient belief systems are threatened, destabilized, and suppressed. The people are subject to heavy taxations, levies, and other oppressive demands from new, unjust, and punitive colonial bureaucracies. People who were once community leaders in the indigenous cultures rapidly lose their place in that culture, and they play an important part in leading these movements. Webster says, quote, the pre-conquest power to the Druids eroded rapidly in the aftermath of conquest. 
It therefore seems reasonable to suggest that these members of the Gallic elite, whose authority had been vested in a now-threatened belief system and whose social standing was steadily eroding, became the focal point of prophet-led rebellion. For this reason, they incurred the special enmity of Rome. Prophesying against Rome at this time was highly subversive. The ancient Romans were very superstitious, as we've said many times, and they knew that the Gauls put great faith in the prophecies of the Druids. They had just conquered the Gauls. The Romans could not have an influential religion, constantly predicting their empire's downfall to a large population of recently conquered people. It was a rebellion waiting to happen. So they did everything they could to delegitimize and suppress the Druidic religion in the years after the Gallic conquest. There were three successive laws that we know about that suppressed the Druidic religion in the years after Caesar. Augustus forbade any Roman citizen from becoming a Druid. But he didn't outlaw the religion entirely, and that was sometime between 27 BC and 14 AD, which is whenever Augustus reigned. I'm not exactly sure when in his reign he did this. His successor, Tiberius, oversaw a senatorial decree against Druids, diviners, and healers. It was under Tiberius that Pliny, the elder, describes a man being executed just for owning a Druidic talisman, something he called a wind egg. Finally, approximately a hundred years after Caesar's conquest of Gaul, the Emperor Claudius abolished the Druidic religion entirely because he viewed it as cruel and inhuman, quote-unquote. But there are certainly places where the Druidic religions still thrived, underground, in secluded places, on the margins of the Romano-Celtic life. One of those places was the island of Britain. And we're going to go there after this commercial break. Maybe... So if you hear a commercial, just remember, that's going to help us get to season seven. Here we go. It's time to worship the gods of commerce. And we're back. And we're back. <laughs> Let's get back into the story. So after the conquest of Gaul, fleeing to Britain brought the Druids time. About a century's reprieve, Caesar gave up on invading Britain after 54 BC, and a serious attempt was not made again for another 97 years. In the meantime, a few Roman emperors sort of flailed at invading Britain, but nobody actually did it. Augustus prepared to invade on three separate occasions, but wound up calling it off each time due to revolts at home. So during an expedition, ostensibly to fight the Germanic people, Caligula was said to have lined up his troops along the English Channel as if for battle, along with their ballistas and war artillery, and then ordered the soldiers to kneel on the sand and gather up shells in their helmets and quote the folds of their gowns, according to Suetonius, referring to the shells as quote, spoils from the ocean due to the capital and Palatine. He then raised a lighthouse near modern day Bologna-sur-Mer to commemorate his quote, victory, a little way south from Calais, the closest point on the French coast to England. I just want to pause for a second, Jen, and have you give us some context on this quote, because from what I understand, Caligula brought his troops to Gaul, modern-day France, but Gaul, to have them go over to Britain and invade, but they absolutely refused to. They mutinied. They absolutely refused to. They mutinied. They were not going to cross that ocean. Caligula had a couple of things going on around this time. This is around the time that his two sisters, Julia Lavilla and Agrippina, were plotting to kill him. And I think he also had trouble with some of the generals on the German front. So this was kind of the last straw for Caligula. And what he did at this point in time was kind of clean house. He got rid of anyone who wasn't going to be loyal to him. He stomped out his sister's rebellion and had them both exiled. And the rebelling soldiers, he said, right, so you should be crossing that ocean. You should be getting the 
spoils of war. You should be getting all of these great things. And instead, these are your spoils. Pick them up off the beach and take them back and show your families and your drinking buddies that you were too afraid to cross the ocean. And this is all you have to show for this march. So he was basically shaming them. He was actually pulling a Julius Caesar shaming. Julius Caesar, I mean, I suspect Caligula's troops were afraid to go to Britain because they saw it as kind of the end of the world. But Julius Caesar's troops must have really seen it as the end of the world. Like no one had been there from the Mediterranean world at that point, except for Pythias, who just said a bunch of crazy shit that nobody believed. And Julius Caesar's troops followed him without batting an eye, at least according to Julius Caesar. Caligula didn't have the time or the ability with so much going on to hang out there forever. So he was like, right, well, if this is what's going to happen, you're going to go back in shame. We don't 100% know because Caligula, unlike Julius Caesar, didn't write his own commentaries. It's also possible that, you know, we're being a bit too kind to him. I think you're being way too kind to him. I think that his troops did not want to follow him because they did not trust Caligula. Sure. And I think he also was like, I'm going to punish you, pick up these shells. I prefer to look at the complexity that he may not have been totally crazy at this point in time. But the reality is he might have just been completely mad. I don't know. I mean, I think that just calling him mad and leaving it at that is a little bit reductive. I also think saying that just lets him off the hook for so much of his bad behavior. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm just interested in the difference between Caligula's leadership and Caesar's leadership because he was also under a lot of pressure. He was also dealing with limited time. He probably had a very small window of time he could do this in. He was also dealing with a war on another continent that he was fighting and people trying to recall him from Rome. So he was also under a lot of pressure. Yeah, and I, I also think that, you know, the one thing we know about Caesar is that he was really good at playing the game in ways that Caligula was not. That's right, absolutely. And he was really good at emotionally manipulating people, including entire legions that wanted to mutiny. They always went where Julius Caesar pointed in the end. There was no fucking pick up the shells and then go home bullshit. No, if it was Julius Caesar at that point in time, everyone would be going across the channel. And they'd feel really bad about themselves for questioning him too. <laughs> I suspect the other thing that we're missing here about Caligula at this point in time is that if both his sisters had been stirring up this discontent in Rome, who's in Rome right now looking after his interests? Like he probably at this point in time, if they're not going to cross this channel and go over and have this great victory, he needs to get the fuck back to Rome. Yeah, that's a good point, too. So as silly as Caligula's antics on the shores of the English Channel were, they did lay the groundwork for the next serious invasion, the one by his uncle Claudius. One thing Caligula did have done was a lighthouse was built, and I think that that was like an important piece of infrastructure that helped an actual invasion of Britain happen during Claudius's time. So Rome had started out as a republic with a senate and consuls and democratic ideals, even if its system was wildly unfair and it usually didn't live up to those ideals. But by Claudius's day, Rome was led by one man. One man. Who wrote this episode? I can't stop saying it like that if it's written that way. And despite how the job was dressed up all nice in the trappings of democracy, there was still a Senate, for example. Rome was now essentially a military dictatorship. And to keep control in a military dictatorship, you have to keep the army happy. And how do you keep the army happy, Jen? Plunder! Sweet, sweet plunder and conquering and colonizing and plunder. So Claudius cast his eyes northward and settled on Britain as a good place to conquer just to keep his army happy. But military leadership was not exactly Claudius's forte, let's just say. He's not, it's not a strong suit. So in 43 AD, he outsourced his entire invasion of Britain to a general called Aulus Plautius. So this invasion did not have an auspicious start. 
Cassius Dio tells us that Plautius got his army as far as Gaul, but they refused to go any further because they were terrified at the idea of having to conduct a military campaign outside the limits of the known world. It was like Plautius was telling them to march to Mars. The planet, not the god. The troops were threatening to mutiny until Claudius sent his freedman, Narcissus, to talk to them. Narcissus was a freedman who had once been a slave of Claudius. He was extremely favored by the emperor and loyal to him. Although there were rumors he conspired with Messalina to manipulate Claudius into doing various things. Yeah, there's a lot of backstabbing, and Narcissus isn't necessarily the friend of the emperor that the emperor thinks he is, but Claudius thinks this guy is his buddy. Anyway, the point is that Narcissus was an ex-slave, but very close to the emperor. And when he first stood up to address the crowd of angry legionnaires, they became even more incensed and their shouting drowned him out. But then we guess they sort of realized who he was and inspired by seeing an ex-slave in a position of command, they all at the same moment shouted, Yo Saturnalia! Yo Saturnalia! Unwillingly followed Plautius into Britain. I mean, I doubt it was as neat and pat as this, but I just love the story of the Yo Saturnalia. I just, I have so many thoughts about it and I don't know enough that like, I'm just literally spinning here. It's like, there's this bit of me that's like, what excellent theater is sending Narcissus and this idea of like, even the lowest of us can rise under the Emperor Claudius. And if you cross the channel here, one day you could be where I am. Like that symbolism. Yeah, he's a symbolism of upward mobility. Either Claudius is a genius for doing that, or he was just like, I don't know what to do. Narcissus, what would you do? He might have just gotten really, really lucky. Yeah. So Plautius's campaign outlasted Caesar's. Doesn't take that much. His army rolled over the British countryside, and within three years, most of southern England was under Roman control. It's said that toward the end of the campaign, when the British tribes in the area were well and truly beaten, Claudius traveled up to the front himself to receive tribute and soak up the glory. His Senate promptly threw him a triumph for his amazing military victory that he had absolutely no personal hand in achieving himself, and voted to give him the honorific Britannicus, which he passed on to his son, Britannicus, which we talk about quite a bit, but not in this episode. But But Southern Britain was really not all of Britain, Jen. This is going to come as a giant shock. No! Yeah, so if you conquer Southern Britain, you have not conquered Britain. No! And maybe Claudius just shouldn't have unfurled that mission accomplished banner quite so fast. So Wales in particular was a big troublemaker. Wales was a stronghold of fierce resistance led by the freedom fighter Caratuckus. So Caratuckus is a really interesting person. He was a prince of the Catavallani, which was a tribe that was among the first to meet the Romans in this particular invasion. And they put up a really strong resistance, but they were ultimately defeated. And when his tribe was wiped out by the Romans, Caratuckus fled to Wales and kept the resistance up. So Caratuckus was a legendary resistance fighter whose story went on to influence Welsh mythology. And there are some thoughts that he was maybe an early inspiration for the legend of King Arthur himself. Ooh. Yeah, Caratuckus kind of reverberates down through the mythology, especially in Wales and in parts of England. And um, Caratuckus led the rebellion in Wales, the factual Caratuckus, uniting several fiercely anti-Roman tribes there for about six or seven years. And we will tell you all all about him in a Patreon episode, which is coming up. The Druids also played an important part in inspiring and organizing that resistance, and Claudius hated the Druids. 
He had to have hated the Druids because the Druids were just a thorn in his side during this invasion of Britain. I will say they were a thistle in his side or a nettle in his side. A pointy kind of a plant in his side. <laughs> so Caratacus was ultimately defeated in 50 to 51 AD by the Romans at the Battle of Caracaradoc. After that, he was captured and handed over in chains to the Romans by Cardamandua, a queen of another Celtic tribe the Brigantes. And we'll tell her story in another Patreon episode. I mean, if you're not following us on Patreon for just $2, you can get these excellent, excellent stories. But the tribes who followed Caratacus fought on. Tacitus describes the extended periods of fierce guerrilla resistance in the woods and the mountains and bogs of Wales. Roman discipline broke down and commanders quickly lost control in the difficult terrain with carefully planned battles giving way to deadly ambushes, chance encounters, and men raiding and plundering without their officers' knowledge. A tribe called the Solores were particularly ferocious in resisting the Romans. Tacitus tells us their resistance was at least partially fueled by a rumor that a Roman general had pledged to wipe them out entirely, as Caesar had once done to the Sicambri during the Gallic War. They fought hard, believing that utter defeat and annihilation were their only alternatives. Yeah, Caesar had destroyed this tribe called the Sicambri during the Gallic War, and I believe that was like at the beginning, you know, when they were like one of the tribes that was migrating and Julius Caesar decided to interpret this migration as a hostile act and killed a bunch of women and children. It was like maybe 100,000 people, according to the commentaries. Eventually, Claudius backed off his expansion into Wales, considering the terrain too difficult, the resistance too fierce, and the payoff too small. But when he died in 54 AD, his stepson Nero came to power, and Nero reversed Claudius's policies. He wanted to see Wales put down. So during Nero's reign, the resistance to Roman rule raged on unabated in Wales, and I believe that most of southern Britain was now a Roman territory. Wales was resisting, as Roman generals continually attempted to subdue Wales and bring it under imperial control. Meanwhile, Tacitus tells us of the complaints of the conquered Britons to the south. Heavy tributes in taxes, endemic violence, theft of property, sundering of families, not to mention forced conscription as many members of defeated tribes were enlisted into the Roman army to fight their neighbors on behalf of the Romans. Tacitus tells us that the new governor of Rome's British territories, a man called Veronius, died before he could end the resistance. A new governor, Suetonius Paulinus, came to power in 58 AD and he had expansionist goals. Paulinus was ambitious. He wanted to expand Roman territory in Wales and conquer the Welsh resistance in order to further his own career. So the ambitious Paulinus set his sights on the locus of Celtic resistance in Wales, the Druid stronghold of Mona. This was a large island in the northwestern corner of Wales, known as Mona in the ancient Latin sources, Ennismon in Welsh, and Anglesey in English. Julius Caesar had claimed that Britain was the great center of Druidic life and learning, and a stronghold of the religion. And the stronghold of the stronghold the last great bastion of Druidic life and belief was the island of Anglesey. Anglesey is Vatican City is what it is. Anglesey, it's an island that you can still go to today. I've been there. It's amazing and beautiful. And it's about 260 square miles. And it is chock full of ancient monuments. The oldest signs of human habitation in Anglesey date back approximately 8,000 years, but most of its great megalithic monuments are between 4,500 and 5,000 years old. 
There are over 120 Neolithic sites on Anglesey, including standing stones, stone circles, burial chambers, and ancient settlements. Oh my god, it's a playground of ancient history if you're really into Neolithic history, which I am. It's amazing. We don't know what the Druids' relationship with these ancient monuments was. Whether or not they saw them as sacred or worshipped there, we don't know. The people who built the ancient megaliths were Neolithic, thousands of years older than the Druids, and their religion was not the same. What little written record we have on the Druidic religion suggests that they perform their rites in sacred oak groves, not in the midst of standing stones. And there's no archaeological evidence connecting these monuments to the Druidic religion. Druids don't appear in the historic record until thousands of years after these monuments were built, and there's no physical evidence of a Druidic presence on this island at all or anywhere else. But that doesn't mean the Druids weren't there. It just means that they didn't build in stone or leave lasting permanent monuments like the earlier inhabitants did. And I would posit because they were defeated and because the Romans did not like them, any of their monuments would have been smashed and destroyed. I mean, this is the season of Demnatio Memoriae. That's entirely possible. It's possible we don't have any Druid artifacts because the Romans destroyed it all. I mean, they did it to their emperors. Why would they not do it to people they conquered? Anglesey is a place of mystery, but the density of ancient monuments makes it clear that by the time of the Druids, the island had been considered a sacred place for millennia. And there actually is some evidence of religious activity on Anglesey that dates to the time of the Druids. So on Anglesey, there's this lake called Lynn Carrigbach. It's not the biggest lake on the island, nor the most picturesque. It's near an airport these days, and it covers only about 1.8 acres, not even two acres. And it's kind of overgrown. There's a bunch of cattails. It's very marshy. But it's been there since before the time of Christ. In 1942, a worker digging peat out of a bog at the southern end of the lake made an incredible discovery. Over 150 Iron Age artifacts, stunning examples of La Ten Celtic metalwork. The first item to come out of the bog, this is very dark, was a slave chain with five iron neck rings to hold five enslaved people chained together. At first, the workers didn't realize it was an ancient artifact and they used it to pull a truck out of the mud and it held up really well. That's just so incredible. I can't think of anything that we make now that would hold up that well. Sorry. I know. Other items discovered in this hoard include swords, fragments of a shield, cauldrons, spearheads, iron wagon wheels, blacksmith's tools, and animal bones. Most of the artifacts had been ritually broken. They had been deposited over a period of about 400 years, from about 300 BC or so to around 100 AD, ending around the time of the Roman conquest of Britain. So sites like this can be found all over Britain and Celtic Europe, places where Iron Age objects, including weapons, luxury items, and tools of daily life, were deliberately broken and placed into bogs, lakes, and other bodies of water. While nothing specifically connects them to the Druids as we know them from Roman writings, these deposits are Celtic and date from times and places where Druids would have been active. We don't know exactly what beliefs led people to break their most treasured objects and place them in water, but archaeologists and historians suspect that the people believed these bodies of water were liminal spaces or portals into the world of the dead or the realm of the gods, and these objects were given as a kind of sacrifice. There are traces of this belief later in Celtic tales like the Lady of the Lake from Arthurian legend. Yeah, remember the Lady of the Lake offers a sword to King Arthur and when he's dying, he throws the sword back in the lake and gives it back to the Lady of the Lake. He does. 
So Anglesey was clearly a center of ritual worship, from the Neolithic Age right up to the Age of the Druids. And in addition to being the last stronghold of Celtic resistance and Druidic power, it was also a place of safety for refugees, as Wales became the front line of conflict between Roman armies and Celtic resistance forces, ordinary people fled north and crossed over to take refuge at Anglesey. This would have been an incredibly perilous journey. Refugees would have had to avoid Roman patrols, ambushes, bandits, and starvation to cross the deadly Menai Strait. And that crossing was not for the faint of heart. The Menai Strait is a stretch of water about 1,300 to 1,600 feet wide. At its deepest point, it's about 50 feet deep. And at its shallowest, it's only about three feet deep. Theoretically, it may have been possible to walk across at low tide. However, that would have been extremely dangerous. The Menai Strait has extremely strong tidal currents and many underlying rocks and shoals that make crossing treacherous for boats as well as people. These were the terrible swellies, an area where riptides drag across rock formations under the surface to create a treacherous aquatic landscape of unpredictable surges, waterfalls, and whirlpools that one medieval writer referred to as a veritable Scylla and Charybdis. Many ships have foundered and wrecked on the swellies, including a 205-foot naval ship in 1953. Many refugees would not have made it alive, but for those who did, they must have thought that at least here, in the remote stronghold of their gods and protected by the deadly straits, they had a decent chance of safety. So in 60 or 61 AD, the dates are fuzzy, Paulinus planned an amphibious invasion of Anglesey. Tacitus tells us that the Romans used, quote, flat-bottomed vessels to cope with the shallows and uncertain depths of the sea. He also tells us that the infantry crossed on these vessels and the cavalry followed by riding their horses in the water or swimming beside them where the water was too deep to ford. But knowing what we know about the swellies and knowing what I know about rivering combat at this point, I doubt it was this easy. My conjecture is that Paulinus and his Romans need specialized help. And in this crossing, I see the expertise of the Batavi. This was an aquatic German dressage cavalry unit that was very elite. And I don't know for sure that they were involved in this crossing, but I think that they were definitely involved in this crossing. I'm just going to go out and say that. Put that tinfoil hat on. What happened next is an apocalyptic vision. The only place we find this account is in Tacitus's annals. Tacitus was the son-in-law of someone who was probably there, Agricola. So Agricola was a Roman general who would go on to spearhead the entire conquest of the rest of Britain. And at the very beginning of his career, Agricola served under Paulinus, the guy who was in charge of the invasion of Anglesey, and he was chosen to be his close personal aide and sleep in his tent. I'm not 100% sure, but I suspect that Agricola was probably at this battle at the very beginning of his career. So Tacitus's account could possibly be based on Agricola's eyewitness recollections. And here's how he describes it. Quote, on the beach stood the adverse array, a serried mass of arms and men with women flitting between the ranks. In the style of the Furies, in robes of deathly black and with disheveled hair, they brandished their torches, while a circle of druids, lifting their hands to heaven and showering imprecations, struck the troops with such an awe at the extraordinary spectacle that as though their limbs were paralyzed, they exposed their bodies to wounds without an attempt at movement. Then, reassured by their general and inciting each other never to flinch before a band of females and fanatics, they charged behind the standards, cut down all who met them, 
and envelop the enemy in his own flames. The next step was to install a garrison among the conquered population and to demolish the groves consecrated to their savage cults, for they considered it a duty to consult their deities by means of human entrails. I mean, to me, again, I'm just reminded of what happened when they dismantled all the cults of, sorry, I'm always Dionysus, but when they dismantled all the cults of Dionysus. I feel like it's a little more violent than that. It's so much more violent than that. What I'm getting here is a real picture of genocide. Yeah, it's just horrifying. It's horrifying what you're seeing here. But it's that taking their culture and then just destroying it and salting the earth, you know, like they did during the Punic Wars. Absolutely. So fell the Druids. In an event that historians would come to call the Menai Massacre, Tacitus tells us that Paulinus didn't get to finish the job of subduing all of Wales, however, because just as they finished burning all the sacred groves, he got word that his entire province was now in revolt because Boudicca had rebelled. My girl Boudicca! So this is where Boudicca comes into the story, but she's going to get her own episode. Maybe more than one. So reluctantly... Paulinus was pulled away, but 17 years later, in midsummer of 77 AD, Agricola came back. By this time, the Druids had been crushed, but there were still holdouts of rebellion in Wales. Just before Agricola came back to Wales, a rebelling tribe had destroyed an entire squadron of Roman cavalry occupying their territory, and their victory raised the hopes of surrounding Celtic communities and prompted further rebellions. Agricola killed those hopes quickly. After defeating the rebelling tribe, he followed up by targeting the last shelter of resistance, Anglesey. Moving quickly and quietly across the strait, Agricola and his forces took the last residence of Anglesey by surprise. Tacitus dwells more on Agricola's modesty in his subsequent victory than what happened in this particular battle. But reading between the lines, we'd guess that the population of Anglesey, already depleted, traumatized, and shell-shocked from the previous violence, had little recourse but to surrender without much fight. It took ten more years to subdue the entire island of Britain. Through a combination of force and diplomacy, Agricola calmed the riotous southern provinces of Britain, built Roman forts in the midst of their territories, and developed networks of Roman roads to solidify and strengthen the Roman presence throughout Britain. But Agricola's most powerful weapon wasn't force. It was cultural displacement. His son-in-law Tacitus describes his most potent tactic of colonization like this, quote, His object was to accustom them, them being the recently conquered Britons, to a life of peace and quiet by the provision of amenities. He therefore gave official assistance to the building of temples, public squares, and good houses. He educated the sons of the chiefs in the liberal arts and expressed a preference for British ability as compared to the trained skills of the Gauls. The result was that instead of loathing the Latin language, they became eager to speak it effectively. In the same way, our national dress, that would be the toga, came into favor and the toga was everywhere to be seen. And so the population was gradually led into the demoralizing temptation of arcades, baths, and sumptuous banquets. The unsuspecting Britons spoke of such novelties as civilization, when in fact they were only a feature of their enslavement. And that's what Tacitus said based on what Agricola told him. And this is how the Romans so often operated when they conquered other people. They quote, civilize them, imposing their own culture, gods, and laws. They did offer the trappings of Roman luxury, the opportunity to buy the richest goods, if you were wealthy, infrastructural improvements, and sometimes the rights of citizenship, again, depending on who you were and at what time. 
But the price was high. It was so, so high. It included widespread enslavement, death, and imprisonment for those who resisted, and conscription in the Roman wars for those who didn't, often as auxiliaries deployed to oppress communities of their own people who refused to make the bargain that the Romans demanded. In the wake of the Roman invasion, like so many people before them, the people of ancient Britain had to make a terrible calculus, continue to fight and die, or accept the trappings of Roman society and lose what they were in the bargain. Because another thing they stood to lose was all they had been before. The great oak groves of their gods and ancestors, all the knowledge and art and lore and history that the Druids carried around in their heads. Because that's what the Romans took. The towering oak groves, the great memory palaces of the Druids, burned to ash and never rose again. What rose up in their place was something different. Roman Britain. And in the wake of conquest, the Britons had to figure out how to live in it. So yes, they learned the language, they wore the toga, and they went to the baths. They adopted and incorporated the Roman religion. They took what enjoyment they could out of whatever luxuries came their way. And as the years passed by, and those who lived through the conquest died out, this life became the only one they knew. But we believe that while they were alive and still remembered what had been before, few among the conquered Britons would not have given back all that civilization in an instant for a chance, just one chance, to walk the sacred oak groves of the Druids once again in conversation with those they had lost. So on that cheery note, we're gonna we're gonna leave you for two weeks. That's it for this week. <laughs> and check out our Patreon. I mean, has there never been a worse segue? <laughs> this is the worst segue we've ever done. In the meantime, please come and find us at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter or Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you so much to our patrons. You are continuing to make this podcast a reality. We couldn't tell any of these stories without you. So thank you. And there's more to this story. We left a lot out. We're going to tell the stories we left out on our Patreon, including the stories of Cardamondua, Caratuckus, the rebel leader from Wales, from southern England and later Wales, and the Batavians, the elite German amphibious dressage cavalry. You must hear about them. You can also get ad-free episodes on our Patreon. We're in the process of uploading those. It's kind of a giant process. It will be complete at a certain point, but we will be uploading things, and at some point you'll get all of our episodes ad-free on the Patreon. So we have some new Patreon members to thank today, don't we, John? We we do. So our new Patreon, $5 and up Patreon members that we want to shout out are Adam Carlton, Stefan Muizen, and I know I screwed that up. I'm sorry. I'm definitely going to mispronounce some names here. Maddie Grace, Maria Perez, Cambria Craig, Tamara Sorota, Joanne Drake, Sydney Vaccaro, Jenny Wenkel, Kara Hang, Jonathan Chorus, and Zing Zhu. And thank you so much to all of our $2 subscribers. We just really appreciate your support. It means the world to us. If you're not a fan of Patreon, but you want to support us anyway, then go to our website at ancienthistoryfangirl.com where you can support us by maybe buying some merch, kicking in a few bucks on our Ko-Fi account. And you can also see the show notes. A lot of times our show notes have like fun images, gifts, stuff from archaeology that we just obviously can't include. Yeah, and um, of course, all of our sources, we put those up there in case you're curious as to where we get all this stuff that we are talking about. Yeah. It's not all straight out of our asses. Isn't it, though? I'd say like 40% straight out of our ass. 
Anyway, if you want to support us but don't have the ability to do it financially, and we totally understand that, feel free to leave us a nice review. Thank you so much for all your support, and we'll see you in two weeks. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.